Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. We're up to El Adon, correct? So we're talking about the first bracha of the Shema, where we um, um, appreciate God as ruler of the universe. So we, it's the light, the sun coming up. I'm saying this because we have a couple of people who joined along the way in the, in the middle of our long, 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 many months long discussion of this blessing. Um, the light, the sun coming up, it's light out. That is a cue for us to contemplate God as God of um, the universe, uh, God of nature. And um, so we looked at the first paragraph, Hakol Yoducha. And now we're up to El Adon. So El Adon, of course, is analogous to El Baruch Gedol Deah, which we see on weekday mornings, which is an Aleph Bet alphabetical acrostic poem about the heavenly bodies. And we, we uh, some of you may remember, um, I showed you in, uh, I think it was in Sijur Sa'ad Yaga'on, he said, but some people say some other prayer, a different Aleph Bet poem about the heavenly bodies. And now we have on Shabbat morning, yet a different poem, Aleph Bet poem about the heavenly bodies, which tells us that having an Aleph Bet poem about the heavenly bodies at this point in the service was like a thing, right? At this point, we introduce a poem. Whereas El Baruch Gedol had one word per letter, uh, El Adon as a poem has um, one line per letter, and each line is about four words long. Um, I want to point out that in this Sidur, which I'm going to hold up just so you see it, you might have a version of this, um, the English translation totally destroys the idea that this is a poem, right? So this is a poem, it has meter, it has rhyme, and the English translation totally destroys that. Marshall, you have the new Sidur. Okay, so um, Meyer is holding up, uh, that's the sax, Koren, right? So the sax Sidur preserves it. And Marshall, how about the new, the new Sidur, the, the, uh, the red one? I forget what it's called, the new conservative. Can, can you, you're, you're, you're muted, Marshall. Yeah, Mar- so Marshall, does it, does it show it up as a poem? Hold it up to the camera to us. Closer. Yeah, so that looks like a poem in English. So unfortunately, the quote-unquote standard Sidur, which I think is the one that Jonathan has in hand, the English translation totally wipes out the idea that it's a poem. I'm not quite sure why they did that. You know, Sidur editors, etc. Um, okay, so here we go. El Adon al Kol Hamaasim. We saw Kol as the, a key word in the last paragraph that we read uh, last week, Hakol Yoducha. So God, ruler of all creatures. Now, who are the creatures here? Is it humans? Is it, uh, you know, it literally means creations, not creatures, right? So Maasim does not imply. Um, living things. It doesn't imply human beings. Uh, so is this meant to include all, you know, humans and all life and also the heavenly bodies? Because we'll see later on as Meyer's sister 
Rena, is that her name? Meyer, your sister is Rena, pointed out last week the heavenly bodies in this version of the poem, the Shabbat version of the poem, are also beings that have a life to them, although they're not beings in the same way that humans are. So, kol hama'asim, humans or all creatures or everything created in the universe, okay? All creations. Baruch umvorach kol neshama, God is blessed by all life, all souls, literally, okay? Godlo vituvo male olam, God's godel and tuv, which means God's greatness and goodness, fill the universe. Da'at utfuna sovivim oto, knowledge and discernment surround him. Now, um, what does it mean that God's knowledge and discernment surround him. So we could say, oh, that's just a poetic turn of phrase. It just means God is very wise, is all wise. But this Dalit line has a sense, which we're going to see more of later on, that certain qualities of God are maybe imagined as forces or things that are somehow created by God that are outside of God. It's not quite like the Kabbalistic Sfirot because this prayer is written prior to the era of classical Kabbalah, but it's a little bit like the Kabbalistic Sfirot, meaning these are attributes that God I'm going to say creates that are semi-independent. They're forces. That would be a better word. That's, I think that's better. They're forces that are, not, that are not just a quality of God. God is good, but rather a force that is somehow created by God. You'll see what I mean a little more later on. By the way, I want to comment on Godlo Vituvo. Um, those of you with very good memories may remember that we talked about this a couple of years ago when we talked about Ashrei, that the, a major theme of Ashrei is connecting God's greatness to God's goodness. That's not something, we, you might think that's obvious, but it's not obvious. If I said to you, I don't know, tell me about the glory of the universe, then you might tell me about, I don't know, black holes or DNA and RNA or all all kinds of things. Uh, You would tell me about how amazing it is, how varied existence is. Uh, But you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't say to me, and it's morally good if I asked you to tell me about nature. You probably wouldn't. Okay. Um, And certainly if I said to you, tell me about the powerful forces in the world, and you told me about uh, black holes and volcanoes and tsunamis and solar flares and all sorts of things, and the temperature of the core of the sun, you probably wouldn't connect it with goodness. You'd probably say it's awe-inspiring. But 
rabbinic theology wants to connect power with goodness. God is all-powerful, but also all-good. Again, this is really a theological idea that I would say kind of flies in the face of our scientific thinking, right? In scientific thinking, we say, well, the universe is filled with power, but that just has to do with nature. That's just science. Morality the idea that something is good is something else entirely. Everyone follow me? If you sort of follow me, nod your head. If you have questions about it, ask a question, right? But the rabbinic theology is no, no, no. Godel and Tuv, greatness and goodness are both aspects of God. In other words, power, God's power is only one aspect of God and God's morality is another and God contains both. Now, how does God contain both? When tsunamis kill innocent people on the beach, that is a very complicated question that people have been asking since the book of Job or in Mesopotamian texts since about 2,000 years before the book of Job, okay? Um, So I'm I'm not going to attempt to give an answer to it. Hold on a second, Meyer. But I just want to point out that the rabbinic theological statement is that God's power and God's goodness are side by side. Remember, this is a blessing about the sun coming up, right? And the word that we saw about it is that this is evidence of God's rachamim, compassion, right? So the universe functioning the way it does is proof of God's compassion, according to this classical rabbinic theology. So I want everyone to see that point and just to sort of notice it, because um, if I was asking you to write, if I just said, write me a blessing, you author a paragraph uh, to insert. We talked about how you can insert some other, if you choose to, you know, you might say the opening bracha and the closing bracha and then say something in the middle about nature, a Mary Oliver poem or something like that. If I said to you, write me a paragraph about the amazingness of nature, I'm guessing that what you would write off the top of your head probably would not say, and nature, and this is evidence of God's compassion, okay, or God's goodness. But so I just want to point out, it's a little bit counterintuitive to the way we modern secular people think about the world and science. Rabbinic theology says, no, Essentially, and by the way, the psalmist says this all over the place whenever the psalmist talks about nature, right? Nature is evidence of God's goodness and compassion. So that might be a challenge to some of us. I just want to let the challenge hang there. But I I just want to be really clear that this is what classic rabbinic theology is saying. And it says it in a very small way by just saying, God lo vituvo male olam. The universe is filled with God's Power and goodness. Pause. Meyer? I just wanted to say it's also reflective, though, of the two creation stories in Bereshi. Yes. Where you have creation of inanimate objects, essentially, and the world and animals, etc., and then the intercession in humankind. Yes. And it says about all of it, ki tov. Okay? And tov is generally used as a word in the Bible to be something of a moral quality, not... It's pretty or it's amazing, 
but rather there is an inherent moral goodness to it. So again, I think this is a challenge to a lot of us. Alan? Yeah. I unmute. You were talking about nature and goodness, but yet in the uh, in Vahayam Shema, the second paragraph of the Shema, we talk about that it's connected with our human actions and the notion of the rabbis acknowledging that nature pursues, pursues its own course and stolen wheat shouldn't grow from another concept. And so there seems to be a dichotomy between the goodness in nature and the rabbinic theology there. Or uh, uh, it's a good point. I guess I'll say it differently. Um, rabbinic theology is not systematic. It's not philosophy. In philosophy, everything has to fit and there can't be internal contradictions. I mean, I'm not a philosophy major, so I don't know, but that's my impression of what philosophy is supposed to do. But, but rabbinical, rabbinic theology, or, you know, people say all the time, well, how can we have all these midrashim which contradict each other, right? Was it very noisy when the Torah was given, or was it so silent that the entire world was still when the world was given, right? So the rabbis are generally not troubled by contradictions in theology. I'm going to leave it at that. Okay, so I think in these this expression of rabbinic theology, the universe is evidence of God's the power of nature. Okay, the greatness is evidence of God's compassion and goodness. They're side by side. Okay, let's try to get through this. Okay, so um, and also and it's very wise. This da'adutfuna, hamit al chayot kodesh. God is elevated above. The holy chayot. Chayot means, uh, in modern Hebrew, it means animals. Here it means, I'm going to call it creatures. V'nehedar b'chavod al ha And he is splendorized in his glory on the chariot. So this line is clearly referring to whose vision, which prophet. We said that these two lines, kadosh, 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 and baruch v'adashem kamo, come from two prophets. Which one is this one? Marshall? You're muted. Marshall's muted. Unmute. I got it. Right, so this is Yechezkel. So Ezekiel, go read uh, after class, Ezekiel chapter 1, his vision of God's throne chariot. And God's throne chariot is supported and pulled around by, um, they're called chayot. To us, they sound like angels because they have wings. And they have four faces. So they're like cherubs, which are mythical beings, griffins in English, or angels, angels with multiple animal faces with wings. Okay, so because, of course, because God's throne is a chariot and this is um, envisioned, I'll say, by Ezekiel, Yechezkel, in his vision, like how does a chariot get around? Uh, you know, in, a human king gets around in a chariot. How does the chariot get around for a human king? Right? It has horses that pull the chariot. So God's chariot, as envisioned, which the little literal word for Merkava is chariot. Little word for chariot is Merkava. Right? So God's chariot is pulled by these chayot, these mythical creatures in Ezekiel's vision. If you haven't read it, I urge you all to go read Ezekiel chapter 1 later today in your favorite Bible translation. So now we're actually imagining God's throne. Remember, we said this leads into the Kedusha, the purpose of the, of the 
of the Kedusha is to give us a little taste of what mystical mystics were meditating on. They tried to meditate on, the, uh, they tried to meditate, we think, in roughly speaking Talmudic times so that they could have visions just like Ezekiel and Isaiah had visions of the supernal realm where God is. So here we're now imagining that uh, God is elevated above the chayot on his chariot. Zechut umishor lifnei chesed v'rachamim This sort of means like righteousness and righteousness are before his throne. Uh, love and compassion are before his glory. So again, this sort of makes it sound as if these things, Zechut and Mishor and Chesed and Rachamim, are not just qualities of God, but are actually forces, or I'll even go further, beings that are God's courtiers, God's servants, right? Because th- these are the things that are before his throne. We want to, our tendency would be to make that all metaphoric, right? God rules with justice and compassion, okay? So I just want to tell you to, to, to fight our, you know, modern demythologizing urge to make it metaphoric and consider for a second that maybe the poet actually means that there are things that are called righteousness and justice and wisdom and mercy, which are actually serving or existing in front of God's throne, in God's throne room. Everyone get that idea? Marshall? In the Lev Shalem, Sidur is a very nice uh, interpretive translation here where it says, integrity and mercy, stand before your throne. And love and merit accompany your presence. So it's really a personification of these qualities. Right. So, so the, that English translation, I think, tries to preserve. I think there is a personification. Personification is sort of the wrong word because they're not actually made into persons. They're into sort of heavenly. But I want to. But I want to suggest that the author may th- think of them not just as, "Oh God, you are imbued with compassion and righteousness." But rather, these are entities, actual heavenly entities. Again, I, I think this is a proto version of the Spherot. I mean, it's probably written, I don't know, a good 500 to 700 years before classical Kabbalah of the Spherot, the attributes of God, the 10 attributes of God. So I, that's why I call it like proto-spherot. But the idea that there are forces that are outside God, that are kind of God's, uh, part of God's heavenly array, part of the king's court, as it were. Um, by the way, um, Abu Draham, one of the commentators on the Sidur, reads this line differently. He says, Zechut in Mishor, which is righteousness and justice before your throne, that refers to humans. Okay, humans who are just and righteous get to stand before your throne. When would when would righteous people get to stand before God's throne? When do you think? Anyone? Pardon? When might you stand before God's throne? 
when you die. When you're dead, right. So if you're a righteous person, when you die, you get to stand before God's throne. Whereas chesed virachamim comes from God. So Abudraham reads this as human qualities and divine qualities. If you have these human qualities, you get to stand before the throne. And the chesed and rachamim is what emanates from God, right? If you have zechut umishor, you get to enjoy, as it were, God's chesed and rachamim when you die. Okay, and now we got the sun, moon, and stars. Tovim me'orot shebara Eloheinu, yitzaram bedaat bevina uvhaskel. We have bara and yatsar. Remember, we have the three creation verbs, bara, yatsar, and oset. And we had all of them now because we had ma'asim. Okay, so... The lights that God created are good. He fashioned them. Now, this is ambiguous. Literally, it means he fashioned them with uh, knowledge, discernment, and wisdom, or three different words for wisdom, three semi-synonyms for wisdom. So he fashioned them with is ambiguous. It could mean either God was very, very, very wise in creating the sun, moon, and the stars, right? Astronomy, the universe, wow, it's so amazing. God must be really smart to have created it. So that's one thing it could mean, right? The alternative is God fashioned the heavenly bodies to have da'at, bina, and haskel. And this is something that Meyer's sister, Rena, who's not here today, commented on last week. Maimonides Believed, but not just Maimonides, all medieval thinkers believed that the heavenly bodies were entities that had a certain, I'm going to call it loosely speaking, consciousness to them. Okay? They were wise. How did people know they were wise? How did people know that the heavenly bodies were smart? Why would they think that? What do you think? What would prove that the, the stars are smart? What do the stars do? They go around and the, they go around, uh, the planets would go around in, uh, in a regular pattern. They, they seem to know what they're doing. Now, if I said to you, why do they do that? You'd say uh, gravity, uh, you know, you'd have all kinds of scientific astronomy mumbo jumbo answers, none of which was, was uh, uh, attainable um, to our ancestors which is why originally in the pagan system, the heavenly bodies that were visible, the seven heavenly bodies that were visible, were deemed to be gods, okay? They moved, they moved within a system, so they seemed to have um, a will to them, all right? So ancient people imputed to them will. So although the heavenly bodies then in the monotheistic Jewish system were demoted to only ser- they're only servants of God. They're only creatures. They're not gods. We talked about this at length, right? So they're not gods. They're just servants of God. Still, they seem to have a wisdom to them. They know when to come and go. The constellations rotate through the year. The moon has a system to it. It waxes and wanes, right? And they didn't know about, you know... So again, this is the pre-Copernican, pre-Galileo universe. They didn't know about what makes the universe go. So um, this could mean, and this really could be the pshat, 
right? This is not, not necessarily a drosh. It could simply mean God created the heavenly bodies to have wisdom, right? Their own kind of wisdom. Uh, and if you don't think I'm telling you the truth, look at the next line. Koach ugvura natan bahem. God gave them, meaning the heavenly bodies, power and strength. To do what? Liot moshlim bekerev tevel. To rule the world. Where does it say that the heavenly bodies rule the world? Genesis chapter 1, day 4. God says, let there be light, that, uh, let there be uh, the sun, moon, and the stars, so that they will mark out time and have dominion over the world. Limshol, it's the same word. Um, by the way, how did medieval people and some people today believe that the sun, moon, and the stars ruled the world? Astrology. Right. Right. And by the way, Rambam says people are stupid. Everyone knows this famous passage in Rambam's Laws of Chuva. He says, people are stupid if you believe that you don't have free choice and that your character is totally determined, determined by the astrological configuration under which you were born. If you believe this, you're like a foolish idolater, right? But it's not true. Everyone has free choice. But Rambam does not say that astrology has no influence, right? Everyone in the Middle Ages believed in astrology, Okay, so basically they have power. They have certain a certain power in the universe. Um, Is this power again? What's clear because it's rabbinic theology is this power is subordinate to God. Okay, so none of it is independent power. Right, it's all subordinate to God. Okay. Malayim zivum fikim noga, they are full of light and they shine light. Na'ez ivam bechol ha'olam, their light, these are different words for light, uh, is, is beautiful through the whole world. Smechim betzeitam v'sasim bivoam osim be'emaritzon konam. This is total personification of the heavenly bodies. They rejoice when they come out and they rejoice when they set. So the suns, you know, the stars rotate around, the moon rises, the moon sets, the sun rises, the sun sets. They all do it with what quality? Joy. Why are they joyful? Why are they joyful? Osim be'emaritzon konam. Why are they joyful? Bernie? Because they're doing the will of their, their creator. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like, you know, my, my, my commander says carry out an order, okay? Then, uh, you know, if I'm a good servant, I say, you know, my liege, I am happy to carry out your order and go kill the Duke of Kent because you have asked me to or whatever it is the king has asked me to do, okay? So they are ha- they're God's servants. They revere God and they are therefore happy to carry out the will of the creator. Again, if you were writing a nature poem, you might write a very different nature poem, but this is, uh, you know, from, I don't know when it's from, it's, it's in Sadia and Ravamram, so it's before the 800s. So this is how it's all envisioned. Okay. Pe'er v'chavod notnim lishmo, they ascribe to God's name 
glory and glory, which probably means they praise God. They say, oh, ruler, you are great. Rejoicing and joyful shouting to the mention of his kingship. So again, they're praising. So they're, they are, as God's servants, they're carrying out God's will joyfully. They're praising God, which is a hint, of course, at what we're supposed to be doing, right? I mean, hey, if the stars are singing praises of God, who would I be to not praise God? Yep. Karala Shemesh Vayizrach, or Halvanah, just to bring it home that it's, they are totally subservient to God. God uh, um, calls out the sun, summons the sun, and it shines light. Why did the sun rise this morning? Because God said, come forth, okay? Which takes us back to the idea near the end uh, of the blessing. Um, Right, and the Midrashic understanding of it that God renews creation every day. This is not deism, that God was the watchmaker who wound up the watch and walked away. But rather, the sun rose today because God actively makes creation every single day. This is the rabbinic idea. Okay, So he called forth the sun. He saw and he... Uh, Hitkin, I'm going to call it, adjusted the shape of the moon. Why, what's the adjustment of the shape of the moon? The moon changes shape through the course of the month. Why is it changing shape? Because God is fiddling with the knobs. Okay? Shevach notnim lo kol marom. Jeff, the word tzava, again, the host. So this is all God's host, God's army, God's multitude. So the army of heaven or the multitudes of heaven gives God praise. Tiferet Ugdullah, and they give God glory and they ascribe to God glory and greatness. Who is doing this? The Tzavam Arom, Seraphim, and Ophanim, and Chayot HaKodesh. And this pulls the two mystical visions together because Seraphim is from Isaiah chapter 6, right? That's Isaiah's vision of Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. It's the Seraphim that say Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. And Ezekiel chapter 1, who talks about the Ophanim, the wheels, and the Chayot. The chariot has creatures, like in lieu of regular horses on earth, who pull the chariot, and the chariot has wheels so that it can move. And, and Ezekiel describes these mystical, weird kind of wheels that are hard for us to imagine. So here we have all of these ideas. God is the God of the universe heavenly bodies, they're doing God's will, they have a quasi-independent status, but they're, to- they're meaning they are, they are entities that have a life of their own, but they are totally subservient to God's will. And that brings us, the poem brings us back beautifully to the theme of um, light. I think I'll stop here for today, but we'll pause for questions and comments. And I guess that means we'll do one more week on the Shabbat version of the blessing because we didn't finish today. But I'll pause for questions or comments. Yeah, Larry, unmute. Um, So now that you've totally ruined a beautiful prayer for me. Sorry. Because before you thought it meant whatever it was you thought about it. The truth is, like in the weekday version, um, 
I find it something that intellectually um, I find so offensive to me that I have a hard time incorporating it into into my prayer. Why? Tell uh, tell us why. Tell you why? Yeah. What's offensive? I'm letting the mysticism reject it, except except in some symbolic, metaphorical way. So if I can overcome it by finding a metaphor, I I do that. Okay. But when it's so, so much in my face, which Eladon really is, almost requiring me to believe in the power of stars to rule my life, um, I need another explanation in Very. order to be able to sing it joyously. Meyer, Meyer, Meyer is going to try to help you now, I can tell. Go ahead, Meyer. <laughs> well, consider this. You know, in the ancient, in, 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 you know, thousands of years ago, when you, all you had is to reflect upon the stars and the sky and the moon, you didn't have other kinds of entertainment. So much of reflection was spent looking up, and it must have been quite, on the one hand, mystifying; on the other hand, very comforting to see not understand what these beings were, but at the same time to appreciate the fact that they were dependable and that you knew they were going to you were going to rely on them. But you have to; I think you have to accept the fact that they played a much more important role in people's lives because wait, they're much more present. Wait, that doesn't help Larry enough because you are giving a historical explanation of why they believe that, all of which is true, okay? But, the, but uh, then a, a question remains, which maybe you're going to get to this, Meyer, is how... And it might mean that Larry has to think a whole different set of thoughts instead of saying El Adon. But if we wanted to say, which the core idea really is, is nature reflects God's metaphoric hand in the universe. That's right. easy. That's great. Okay. So I just keep repeating the first, the first stanza. Okay. This is great. Does, does anyone, Larry, Meyer, you want to help? You want to help them some more? Uh, Meyer's right. You're not wrong. But 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 what Larry's saying, okay. But knowing that, you know, knowing that people a long time ago felt this way because of how they understood the world, that's true. But that might not speak to you in a sufficient way. Then I'm like re- reading some poem of what people believed 1,500 years ago. Nice. But I don't believe that now. But, but faith is still an, ex- an expression of humility. And I, think, and I think that there's an element of the small speck you are in the universe. And I think that part of that is that awe and mystical quality is applied to that because you appreciate that there's so much more that you don't have control over and that you're a little piece. And I think that's part of what this is in the sense of how we, why we continually try to figure it out and try to see what our place is in the world. Okay. respond to that briefly? Sure. So, I accept that completely. And I will admit, that is a large part of my, of my davening, this crime. So I'm trying to keep, I'm, I'm in the right zone. Um, but it doesn't mean that I have to accept things that I know are, for me, at least, both either absurd or offensive. So use your analogy. I appreciate the fact that the ancients, including our ancients, devised all sorts of systems that I no longer agree with, like sacrifice. And I still include the sacrifices in my prayer, but I include them because I understand that that was part of a system, that that's all we could do at the time, 
And now that we can't, we understand that we don't do sacrifices anymore, and the prayers themselves substitute for the sacrifice. So I'm reminding myself of the primitiveness of the ancients, but their attempt to achieve something greater, and I'm attempting that same thing. I'm not believing in sacrifice. I'm believing that the sacrifices are metaphorical ways to approach holiness, godliness, etc. I want to understand that with regard to the universe, especially the physical universe. I can't believe the stars are controlling my life. I can believe the stars are an element of God's glory, and I can also believe that they were the way in which the ancients used to think that God affected their life. But I cannot say, uh, say, say, say something that says, yes, I believe that the stars are imbued with this wisdom and power and that they can control my life. Okay, I'd like to hear, uh, wait, wait, I'd like to hear if anyone weigh in on this other than Larry and Meyer. <laughs> now, I just want to hear what other people have to say about this in terms of sort of, uh, and again, uh, I'm not asking the question of like, does this convince you that it is factually true? That's not the question. The question is, given that this is the shot of what the prayer means, how do we live with it in this context? Right? Larry says it's a turnoff. If I can sing it joyfully without thinking about the words, then I'm happy. That's what Larry is saying. Right. Alan? Yeah, yeah I think you can just focus on God, his nature, and that people can connect with God through nature. And you, and it, you just view this as the metaphor of that. This is exalting God's power over over the world, or God's power in the world, and accept it for that, as opposed to saying, well, that each of these individual things is imbued with uh, a, a, a way to control us. Right. I think it's just accept God in nature, which is how many people today connect with God. Any other comments? So I think this raises an interesting question, which we encounter a lot of times. Jeff, was that a Jeff? Jeff, was that a raising hand? Jeff, or no? No. Okay. Which is, you know, the Sidur is an anthology of prayers that have been written over a long time. Many of them were written a long time ago, and they may emerge from all kinds of different sensibilities and beliefs than our own. By the way, I'm sorry I ruined it for you, Larry. You know, the vast majority of people, when they're singing El Adon, are not singing any of this. And El Adon, because of the way it's written, in a, in a, the poetic way in which it's written, is, you know, sung beautifully in most shuls, right? All kinds of melodies. We're going to do a new melody. It's one of the, like, most joyful parts of Shachrit. There's an irony to that. Meyer, you want to say something? I want to make one more attempt. Okay. Uh, and that is, I think if you look at the modern equivalent, when people are looking at the sky and trying to figure it out, you can look at supernova and genetics. You can look at different elements of our sciences now that we find mysterious, that we're exploring, that we don't fully understand. And we look for meaning in that. And we know that it regiments our lives. We understand that it has control over us, but we don't quite understand how. So you can almost replace any sort of uh, physics or science or other metaphysical concept, metaphysical concept, you know, a scientific concept for the stars because we now know the, how these work. So for you, they're like, well, this doesn't make any sense to me. But if you replace that with something that you don't quite understand and you know exists and you see every day, but you understand how it impacts your life, it then can, I think, fill you with wonder. 
we need to have this conversation. I only want to recommend to everybody, if they haven't already, Jonathan Sachs' book, The Great Partnership, which yeah. deals with the balance of uh, between science and theology. And it's a very narrow path. I'm not saying he does it perfectly, but it helped, it helped me a lot, and it continues to help me a lot to find that right balance. Okay. Let's end on that note. We'll continue, God willing, next week. Everyone keep thinking about this. If you have more thoughts of how you put it together in your mind, uh, we'll share that next week, please. I want everyone to mull it over. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.